welcome to Humans in Public Health. I'm Megan Hall. All this week, Brown University School of Public Health is exploring the theme, Public Health is Where You Are. Today, what is truth? What facts can we all agree on? It's become harder and harder to answer these questions. Lies spread quickly in the internet age, and they can have real health consequences, affecting everything from mask wearing to vaccination rates. That's why Brown's School of Public Health is excited to welcome Professor Claire Wardle as a new professor of the practice. Claire is the co-founder and executive director of First Draft, a nonprofit devoted to protecting communities from harmful misinformation. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Claire to learn more about her work. Claire Wardle, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Most of us are pretty aware of disinformation and misinformation. It's all around us. But you saw this coming. You left your academic job in 2009 to do a training with the BBC on social media and disinformation. Can you tell us that story? How did that happen? So back in January 2009, there was a plane that crashed into the Hudson River and uh, a man captured the image of the passengers on the wings of the plane. And at the time, the head of BBC News Gathering called me up and said, none of my journalists know what this Twitter thing is. Everybody at CNN seems to have found this image. Can you help my journalists learn how to find this kind of content, but more to learn how to verify whether or not it's true or not. We're seeing more of this kind of imagery on the social web, but we don't know how to handle it. So I was like, sure. So much to my mother's frustration, I left my nice, safe academic job and went to train the BBC. After your work with the BBC and doing other work around um, misinformation, disinformation, you started First Draft in 2015. And the goal is to protect the community from harmful misinformation. So how do you do that? So 2015, we started First Draft. It was a collaboration of a number of organizations. We recognized that journalists were really struggling here. There was an increasing amount of eyewitness video that was happening around breaking news events, and newsrooms didn't really know how to do this kind of verification. So we grew, and during the pandemic, we worked a lot more with health authorities and community-based organizations. So now we work with a number of different organizations who are struggling to do the work that they want to do because disinformation is impacting their messaging or the way that people understand an issue. With journalists, I understand that you would just help them verify information, but how would you help a health organization? Are you just helping them get the correct information out there? Are you also helping them take down misinformation? What do you do? So we do a lot of just teaching people about the landscape. There are many organizations that don't even know the tactics that are being used against them. So we show the way that their press releases are being weaponized or the way that their spokespeople come out and do really well-meaning talks, not understanding that it's getting clipped by bad actors. So we do some of that work. We then teach people how to find this stuff. So for example, if you're an organization working on climate change, you might not know the ways that people are you know, spreading climate misinformation. So we teach people how to find this stuff, how to verify it. But then we teach people best practices for mitigating this. So for example, if you're going to run a headline around a rumor, you need to think very carefully about not giving additional oxygen to a rumor. So for example, if it's a very niche rumor that you found in just a couple of Facebook groups, if you're a health authority and you call it out, you're actually making people go, what, what was that rumor? And they go to Google and they search it and they find a conspiracy site. 
Or if you write a headline, all of the psychological research says you have to warn people before you share the rumor. So rather than just saying, does 5G cause brain cancer, question mark? And then if you read the whole thing, you're like, oh, it doesn't. So there's a lot of that kind of work that we do. Rather than hoping that people don't see bad information, instead, things like pre-bunking, which is, okay, the midterms are coming up. It is very likely ahead of the midterms that you will see pictures of ballot boxes in the wrong place. That is a known tactic that happens every time. When you see it, be a little bit more skeptical because we know it's a tactic that gets used a lot. You teach people the expected tactics and techniques that will be used to manipulate them. How would you explain sort of the landscape of misinformation right now? Well, actually, I'll start backwards and say, you know, 2008, 2009, when I first started doing this work, you know, the BBC might get about three or four hoaxes a year. Somebody who was thinking, how can we get the BBC to interview the wrong person? How can we send an image that might get used on the news? It will be funny. But there was nobody really at that stage who was understanding how much money you can make out of disinformation by running ads or using scams to make money. There weren't very many people who understood how you could really influence people during elections or about downgrading people's reputation in the business world, trying to move the stock market. And so unfortunately, as we've seen, you know, 2016 was the year that everybody woke up to this. We had the Philippines elections, we had Brexit, we had the 2016 election here with Donald Trump. And, but there was this idea that it was really about elections and that's when there was a problem. And then, of course, COVID showed everybody that really it was about health misinformation. But little breath here, the rest of the world has been struggling with health and science misinformation for decades. So they were kind of like, yeah, welcome the US, welcome to the party. And unfortunately, we see humans, the public, us being more susceptible than ever, because unfortunately, the world is becoming increasingly polarized. And when people are in their kind of camps, their tribes, it makes them even more susceptible to this and bad actors are taking advantage of that. This landscape is constantly changing. Misinformation, disinformation, lies are all around us. Does it feel like you're kind of shoveling against the tide? Like, how can a one nonprofit really address all of this? So sometimes people say, how do you still do this work? Because the situation is worse now than when you started. Don't you feel like a complete failure? Which is a fair question. <laughs> but I think what I say to people is, this is not a quick fix. This is going to take 30 years and we're never going to solve it. We've got 30 years, I think, to get to a point where it's manageable. And that's because we need to teach people how to basically navigate an information space that is really, really polluted. So it's the equivalent of getting everybody to wear SPS 15. It doesn't change the fact that the sun is going to cause damage. I'm never going to clean up Facebook. But I, if I have more people who know how to navigate their Facebook feeds, then that's where we need to get to. How are you bringing all of these efforts to address misinformation to your work at Brown? So I'm very excited to have this opportunity to be at Brown, mostly because Brown is famous for being a university that takes multidisciplinarity seriously. There are lots of universities that say it, but don't really do it. There's a real opportunity to work with people who, for example, are thinking about democratic erosion in the political science department, scientists who are thinking about climate change, people who are thinking about hate speech and identity, all of these different elements that are concerned or have misinformation at the heart of the kind of work that they're doing. So I'm really excited about that. 
But the thing that we're going to build at Brown is, is focused on the future. What we do need is a center that's really focused on what works and not just what works in the US, but what works globally, what's scalable. How can we really think about interventions that make sense? And some of my frustrations are that the academy doesn't necessarily connect enough with practitioners. But similarly, practitioners are very good at throwing spaghetti at the wall, but don't understand why we need rigorous evaluation to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So the dream at Brown is to try and bring these two worlds together so that we can really do research that means that we give practitioners tools, tactics, resources, workbooks, trainings, technology that makes their life easier. But all of these things have been tested and we know that they work. When I went to get my master's in public health, most of my courses were about things like epidemiology, biostatistics. So why is it important for a school of public health to have courses and work around misinformation? So I don't want to throw any shade I'm going to. But there is still a tweet out there from the WHO from January 2020 that says that COVID is not transmissible via aerosols. It's still out there as a tweet. But there's also tweets and Facebook posts by the CDC and others about masks that don't make any sense anymore. And I think one thing that we've learned, or I hope that we've learned during this pandemic, is the importance of communicating effectively uh, communicating in a way that there's an honest conversation about what's known and what's not known. There has been a disturbing downward trend in trust towards these very important large public health institutions. And I think if we don't learn from that, then all of the great work done by epidemiologists and statisticians and other people working in public health means zero if fundamentally people are not using that data to inform their decisions. Dean Jar, the reason when he came and found me, I was like, I'm going to be honest, I'm not a public health person. He was like, that's exactly why I want you to come here, because we have to integrate this into our education. We have to integrate this into our research. It doesn't matter what we do at the School of Public Health if we don't take communication seriously. I have relatives who seem to have been sort of taken over by misinformation, swallowed up by it. They love sharing very mean, misleading content. It's broken some of our family apart. Can you do a social media misinformation like intervention or is there a way to detox from all of this stuff? Yeah, you can do an intervention. It's not easy. It's like all family interventions. There's no guarantees, but it can be done. And I'll tell you how you don't do it. You don't say, hey, Frank, those things you're posting on Facebook, stop it. Let me share with you a number of fact checks that are going to prove that you're wrong and stupid. That doesn't work. That doesn't work if you do it face to face. It doesn't work if you do it in Facebook comments. The best way to be like, hey, Frank, I saw some of the things you've posted and I get it. Like, I'm scared too and I'm confused and I don't know who to trust and I'm spending all day on my phone and I still don't know where to go. But I'm kind of worried that some of the stuff that I'm seeing, and maybe you're seeing it too, like I'm worried that it's dividing us. Like I'm worried that it's not coming from a position of knowledge, that actually it's designed to scare people. I'm worried that it's by other people who don't know. And I just, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how we can try and figure this out. I think something that I try and say a lot is those of us who live in <laughs> the information ecosystem that we do, like our information ecosystem is top down, linear and hierarchical. You know, I'm going to listen to a press conference with Dr. Fauci. I'm probably going to read it in the New York Times and I'm going to go, mm, yes. But it's very passive. 
I'm being broadcast at and I consume it and I might share it with somebody, but it's not really interactive. The disinformation ecosystem, the conspiratorial ecosystem is really participatory. People feel like they have agency, they're doing their own research, they're sharing it with their communities who say, thank you, let's add that to our database. I think we forget that and that's critical to all of this, which is as humans, many people want that connection that increasingly they don't have in their everyday lives. If your work at Brown is successful in the next 10, 20, 30 years, how will we be approaching information and responding to it differently? There will be less of it. It won't have disappeared. There will be less of this kind of content, but people will be much more savvy. They will be much more aware, but they will have higher levels of emotional skepticism and they will be able to navigate and make decisions based on quality information. And those organizations that are providing the accurate information I think we'll be much better at understanding what people need. So there will be a mixture of both those who are seeking it, but those who are providing it. And I think at the moment there isn't that, there's a mismatch, but I, I feel like the information ecosystem will have grown up and evolved and kind of grown into its own body. Like I feel like it's in its teenage years and it's gangly and it's got acne and it's moody, but I think that we will grow into this and it will be like, this is how it was meant to work. You know, it's not perfect, but it's doing okay. Uh, it will have matured and I think people will be able to navigate elections, pandemics, wars, and we won't be in this like, oh my God, how do we verify this TikTok video that was actually from five years ago? I mean, it's crazy how we're still today really, really, really struggling with this stuff, even though people have been talking about it for six years. There's been a whole ton of money gone into it. There's a whole load of initiatives, but still we're struggling with pretty basic disinformation coming out of Ukraine and many people who don't even know where to start or who to trust. And that's, you know, I really hope we're not there in 30 years time. Claire Wardle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was my pleasure. Claire Wardle is a professor of the practice at Brown University School of Public Health. She's also the co-founder and director of First Draft, a nonprofit that helps organizations tackle misinformation. You've been listening to Humans in Public Health, a special series for National Public Health Week. Humans in Public Health is brought to you by Brown University School of Public Health. This episode was produced by Tino Della Merced. I'm Megan Hall. Thanks for joining us this week.